Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. As a reliability engineer, my overall job is to make production equipment more reliable. So, not just a clever title. If I were to make everything perfectly reliable, my job would be done. So if I were to sum up my job in a sentence, my job is to work myself out of my job. Now, that'll never happen because machines wear out and I'm not particularly good at my job, so, you know, (laughs) crisis averted. The same kind of philosophy is apparently what all tree-hugging, oil-hating, tofu-eating greenies work under, only the job they're trying to work themselves out of and also trying to force all of us to work ourselves out of is uh, existing. If they could just make you and I and them and all humans cease to be, that would be a job well done in their book. On today's episode, we'll give a new meaning to flying fish, then we'll complain about everything, and finally we'll go completely virtual. And I do mean completely. So grab your butterfly net and some lures, preferably from Monong, Wisconsin, Get out your candles, you're going to need them, and put on your virtual reality goggles and open a fresh container of virtual reality baby wipes while you're at it, because they're coming to take me away, ha ha, they're coming to take me away, ho ho, he he, ha, here we go. Okay, I've got a riddle for you. Ready? When is a bumblebee not a bumblebee? Give up? (laughs) When it's a fish. (laughs) Get it? Uh, no, me neither. Okay. I have no idea how that works, but I know that it does work and that it's not a, a joke at all. Let me clarify. This is a joke, but not a funny haha joke told for the amusement of children and small-minded people. This is a joke that's being played on the American population, and although most would think, so what? I tend to think, so what does this mean moving forward? And that's what we need to address. Found on iflscience.com headline, Great Day for Bumblebees, as Californian Court Rules That They Are Fish. (sighs) So the manipulation needed is somewhat silly, but basically this was ruled to fall under the California Endangered Species Act, or the CESA, which is in addition to the Federal Endangered Species Act, because of course California has to do and overdue everything, as they're approximately 104% insane. The CESA stipulates that the endangered species are comprised of birds, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, or fish. Notice the absence of insects, and that is where our drama begins. And let me tell you, the more I look into this, the more ridiculous this gets. And now I need to try and relate it to you. So back in 2018, the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, and I think I'm saying that right, Xerces spelled X-E-R-C-E-S, not Xerxes, spelled X-E-R-X-E-S. More to the point, that's a thing. The Society for Invertebrate Conservation, that actually exists. So just in case you didn't think anyone was fighting for the conservation of invertebrates, (laughs) you are dead wrong. Dead, dead wrong. 
So the XSFIC, and that just rolls off the tongue, along with the Defenders of Wildlife and the Center for Food Safety, filed a petition to have the California Fish and Game Commission to put endangered species protection on four types of bumblebees. And I'll be honest, you need nay, nay, you want to know the names of these bees. They are the Western, the Franklins, the Suckly Cuckoo, and the Crotch. I'll give you a moment. Okay, moment's over. Let's soldier on, shall we? So the commission decided that they could protect the bees via the fish definition, which encompasses, quote, wild fish, mollusks, crustaceans, invertebrates, amphibians. By calling the bees invertebrates, which by definition, insects are invertebrates, but they are not fish invertebrates. But the commission didn't really care. They were, they were pretty cool with it, actually. But the Almond Alliance of California, along with seven other agriculture groups, filed suit, not as you'd probably likely suspect because they're afraid of or allergic to or just generally hate bees and want them all to be destroyed, but because of what the designation would actually do. They all agreed that bees need to be generally protected, that they are a massive key to pollination of all plant life, but the designation would cause massive problems for food producers. You know, those people that produce food. For people like us and Californians. The Almond Alliance, after the initial court case was won by those against the designation, put out a statement that said, quote, Pesticide restrictions, grazing rules, and other habitat protections could then be imposed. This means prohibitions on killing them, which the Department of Fish and Wildlife routinely interprets to extend to harm to the bees or their habitat. That could lead to uncertainty if bumblebees are present on fields or in any other areas where agriculture is happening. This type of ambiguity would be disruptive to the almond industry. For example, ripping or other soil movement could be claimed to disturb potential nesting sites. The petitioners specifically list honeybees as a threat to the bumblebees, thus a listing could regulate placement of or reduce the number of honeybee hives. Listing bumblebees as threatened or endangered is setting the stage for how other insect pollinators will be defined, regulated, and protected. So their biggest complaint isn't the protection of the bees. It's the ambiguous and overreaching interpretation of a government body making on a fairly clear rule. If the rule is don't kill them, but the department says you can't move soil, you can't have honeybees, you can't use the land, you can't use this pesticide, etc., this could seriously hamper and dramatically increase cost for those that filed the suit. Well, an appeal was filed again by the XSFIC et al. in California's 3rd District Court of Appeal, and they decided to reverse the decision, you know, the right decision, made by the initial court, and say that absolutely bees can be classified as fish. In what I would call tortured logic, the court in their decision stated, quote, A fish, as the term is commonly understood in everyday parlance, of course, lives in aquatic environments. As the department and the commission note, however, the technical definition in section 45 includes mollusks, invertebrates, amphibians, and crustaceans, all of which encompass terrestrial and aquatic species. Moreover, by virtue of the express language in section 2067, the trinity bristle snail, a terrestrial mollusk and invertebrate, is a threatened species 
under the act and could have qualified as such only within the definition of fish under section 45. We next consider whether the Commission's authority is limited to listing only aquatic invertebrates. We conclude the answer is no. Although the term fish is colloquially and commonly understood to refer to aquatic species, the term of art employed by the legislature in the definition of fish in section 45 is not so limited. So basically, if the Fish and Game Commission says a bee is a fish, or any other bug is a fish, they now have the right to do so. Now, I'll let you go back and research what these designations have done to California farmers and food producers thus far, but suffice to say, for some reason, people that eat food are making it as hard as possible for people that grow food to grow food. Basically, every single environmental-type government department in the entire country, every state, plus the Fed, they're all out of control. In my opinion, they need to be put on hiatus, completely rechartered with very very limited powers, governed by a totally bipartisan board, as there's no such thing as a nonpartisan or apolitical person, that are voted in by the people, and then they need to be held accountable for even stepping out of line by a fraction of an inch. Incidentally, the judges for the Third Court of Appeals are appointed by the governors. In this case, we have 11 judges total. Four were appointed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, so quasi-conservative, three by Governor Moonbeam, Jerry Brown, one by Gray Davis, a Democrat, one by George Duke-Magian, must be Duke-Magian, I don't know, a Republican, one by Pete Wilson, a Republican, and one by the current communist nut job, Gavin Newsom, a Democrat at best. So in theory, the court should be six to five conservative. This case was heard by a three-judge panel, two appointed by Democrats, one appointed by Ani, and they overturned the previous ruling unanimously. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're shocked. Hopefully, this ruling will be reappealed and overturned again. As I'll be honest, this, even though it gives the appearance of being a small thing, is a massive blow to agriculture in California. And you may not realize this, but California is the largest crop producer in the United States, contributing over 13.5% of our total. This also opens a door for any of these nutjob, earth-worshipping, human-hating, green agenda idolaters to claim all sorts of bugs and pests are fish, and completely shut down the ag industry in California. And then, of course, it sets somewhat a precedent for other loonies to follow suit in other states. Nothing is done in a bubble these days. There are potentially slippery slopes to everything now. Additionally, something needs to be done about these activist courts and judges. I don't care if it's on the right or the left. Judges are not there to make laws or interpret law based on how they want to interpret it. Granted, they had more standing on how they decided this case than the Supreme Court did on forcing an Obamacare a number of years ago, but the concept is still the same. The mental gymnastics to arrive at the conclusion that a bee is a fish is not what a court should do. It's not hard to see that the invertebrate, the way the rule was written and adopted, meant water dwelling for all or part of its life. Let's put these bees in water for about four hours, then come back and see, you know, if they're doing the butterfly stroke across the waves. Based on this kind of ridiculousness, you could take any word, in any law, look for a specific current or past definition, and the court could rule in your favor. In Exodus 18, after Moses' father-in-law saw Moses sitting as a judge all day deciding cases, saw that it was going to burn him out, that one man, even Moses, was not going to be able to keep up that pace, nor even hear all the cases of the masses. So he came to him and gave him sage advice. Quote, 
Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. And then forty years later, Moses was recounting the Exodus, and he came to the time that he listened to his father-in-law's advice. In his recount, he said this, quote, At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers, throughout your tribes, and I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with them. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Moses took wise, understanding, experienced, God-fearing, trustworthy, honest, impartial men and ensured they knew the laws and statutes given by God that they were to use in making their ruling and told them to judge righteously, for the judgment is God's. Nowhere in there did Moses say, interpret the law or make law or even try not to let your own biases and agenda creep in there. It was expected that they judge based on God's law. There was no ambiguity there. Now, what if we had judges that were sworn in with the expectation that they were to judge righteously, that they were to judge based on the laws and the statutes only? Can you imagine how different this country would be if our judges judged based on the law only? In a case like this, they'd have to tell Xerxes to go petition the state government to pass an amendment to the Endangered Species Clause to include insects. And if that didn't pass, or if it passed with certain exceptions— then they'd have to work within the actual law. That's how it should be done. Now, in the future, at some point, there will be two final judgments, one for those that are saved, one for those that are unsaved. There will be no interpretation, no agenda, no new laws made, no bias, either you're saved or you're not. Final destination being heaven or hell. And from there, we will all be judged based on what we've done in this life. You know, it's amazing how mankind starts with Moses with righteous judges, ends with God as the righteous judge, and in the middle, we have judges that decide bees are fish. Simply amazing. Well, I'll be honest. I really don't know how to start this article. I mean, I want to laugh, you know, like a full-blown belly laugh, you know, something along the lines of jolly or bowl full of jelly. And then I realize that, wait a minute, this is the country that I live in. This is where all my stuff is. And and these are supposed to be smart people, people that vote and influence things. And then I just want to cry and just a, just a snot-flowing, pitiful, wailing man cry. So I guess I probably just need to get into this and let you decide. Is this funny or sad or scary or stupid? Or, I mean, it can be so many things. Sadly, there is also one very simple question and one very simple answer 
that could eliminate all of this wasted motion and money that nobody's asking because nobody wants to ask because they don't want to have the answer. I'll explain as we go. So, found on dailygreenworld.com, an article that was originally on National Geographic, except that I'm not paying for, you know, National Geographic online. Headline, Activists Fear a New Threat to Biodiversity, Renewable Energy. Uh-huh, you heard that right. We now have activists that are focused on biodiversity, you know, life forms like plants, animals, insects, fish, etc., that are living in various regions of the United States that are being threatened by renewable energy. You know, the type of energy that's going to save the planet, including the biodiversity in the United States, from the evil fossil fuel companies that really don't threaten the biodiversity found in the United States because of the location, the extraction methods, and the footprint that they use, except for the fact that they emit greenhouse gases that definitely threatens the biodiversity found in the United States. Yeah, you got, got that? Yeah, me neither. Okay, here's the gist of the article. First, we know that man-caused climate change is real, and it will kill everything if it's not stopped. Next, we know that man-caused climate change is definitely because you want to drive your gas-guzzling car, and you want your air conditioning, and look, this is your fault, obviously. Next, we know that the answer that will fix everything is to replace that fossil fuel energy with renewable energy. And we know that the types of renewables that will fix our problems are wind and solar, geothermal, hydroelectric, you know, those sorts of things. We also know that nuclear is not a viable alternative, so just stop suggesting it. Because all those things do is just blow up and kill everything I mean, look, if it's happened once, it's happened to me. Well, it's never. It's not ever happened. But just imagine if it did, right? I mean, that'd be awful. These are the premises that this polyscientific article is based on. Yes, I'm going to co-opt the term polysci. I don't care. Polyscientific. If it's science, but it contains the phrase, the science is settled, or the phrase is implied, which it definitely is in this article, you've left science and entered politics, thus polyscientific. Now, with the foundation set, we get to move into the conflict portion of our drama. We know that dotting the landscape with huge windmills and blanketing the country with solar panels all takes up space, right? Acreage. We also know that mining for lithium for all of our sweet, precious batteries causes the destruction of the land to some degree. And if you've seen those mines, it looks like to large degree. Likewise, we know that coal mining, oil drilling, and power production via power plants also takes up space, right? Acreage, and it destroys the land to some degree. Now, from a previous article review on this podcast, we know that to equal the output of a nuclear reactor, you need between 200 and 275 times as much land for wind and 35 to 60 times the land for solar. This is the problem. With more land, now try to follow this, please. With more land required to generate the needed power output comes more land 
being used. Right? That, that seems like that's pretty elementary, right? But with all the land being used, you now have to contend with natural waterways, natural land features, native plants, native animals, native fish, native bugs. And there are those, and I'd say probably the vast majority of those, that believe that climate change is destroying our planet, who also believe that setting up wind and solar farms and open mining for lithium in order to curb the power generation based greenhouse gas emissions that's destroying our planet it will destroy vital flowers plants bugs fish and animals we're kind of doomed here because we have nowhere to go now let me give you some information from the article as to what we'd be actually sacrificing and sacrificing here in order to set up these solar and wind farms mostly out west you know where the flat land the wind and the abundant sunshine and the deserts are located the the perfect spots for things like uh, windmills and solar panels and geothermal but sacrificing i just want to reiterate that here so patrick donnelly the great basin director for the center for biological diversity in addition to needing an oversized business card he keeps an informal list of potential losses due to setting up these renewable sources of energy. And some of the losses are as follows. Regarding lithium mining, that could destroy the Tiam's buckwheat, which apparently is more rare than lithium and is only found in a 10-acre plot of land in southwest Nevada, near where a lithium mine is actually planned. The Tacopa bird's beak, which is an annual herb, the Railroad Valley Springfish, the Railroad Valley Toad, the Kings River Pyrg, I have no idea, P-Y-R-G, Pyrg, a tiny snail, the Ash Meadows Lady Tresses, which is an orchid, I'm, I'm probably talking down to you, that's all what lithium could destroy. Solar could threaten the desert tortoise, or, and, and please sit down for this one, the three-corner milk vetch, which is a legume or the white-margined beard tongue, which is a flower. And then you have geothermal energy, which could threaten the Dixie Valley toad, the Dixie Valley, and here we go again, pyrg, which is, a again, a tiny snail, the Long Valley speckled dace, which is a small fish, the steamboat buckwheat, I don't know why we hate buckwheat, the Fish Lake Valley tui chub, another small fish, and the bleached sandhill skipper, which, as we all know, is a butterfly. Now, as for solar, apparently Mr. Donnelly doesn't care about that, but Rebecca Hernandez an ecologist at the University of California, Davis, does. She studied the Ivanpah Solar Electric Generating System in California and found that although they left untouched patches of land between the solar panels just to accommodate threatened plants like the Mojave milkweed, she found that there were not as many pollinating bugs within the solar site on the milkweed as there were outside the solar site on the milkweed out there. Well, I think we have only one thing to say about solar. <laughs> it's evil. Evil. Solar panels are obviously evil, as the milkweed may not be able to propagate as much without as many pollinators. And she asked, lamentingly, I, I would dare say, quote, what's the point of conservation zones 
if we don't include enough area. <sighs> in fact, Argon Walston, a biologist, said that the assessments for setting up these renewable energy sites often don't do enough to ensure they won't damage these fragile ecosystems. In fact, quote, rare plants in these environments might skip a year. So you could have an approved survey design that misses some of these species, and the data would then say, let's proceed with development. I think there's a need for better data. Oh, amen, Mr. Walston. Then you come to people like activist and wildlife technician Laura Cunningham, who doesn't want the desert touched uh, at all. She says, quote, The last thing we should be doing is building solar projects on public land in ecosystems with thriving Mojave Desert biodiversity. Destruction of even a little plant matters, and it should matter because there are better alternatives. She and her retired park ranger husband, Kevin Emmerich, and no, the fact that she apparently kept her last name didn't escape me, and that's as telling as anything in my humble opinion, they founded the Basin and Range Watch, an organization that tracks and fights any energy projects slated for currently untouched land. Any of them. For instance, as of right now, the BLM, no, 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 not, not that BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, is planning six solar farms for a total of 62,000 acres in Nevada. So, that's bad. So what are these alternatives that everyone keeps talking about? Well, one is to install solar panels on farms, you know, land already being used for crops. They could help with drought stress by shading the land, to which I'd ask, don't crops need the sun? And when it rains... Wouldn't this divert and kind of stop the rain from hitting the ground in all of the places? And unless the panels are being suspended by strings from the heavens, wouldn't this be a nightmare for farmers to navigate around when harvesting the crops? I, there's probably other silly, silly questions like that, but, but that'll do for now. But Mr. Walston did a study showing that there's a lot of already disturbed land. So, you know, just put it there. <laughs> I don't think the land is the only thing disturbed. Anyway, then you have some environmentalist turncoats like Helen O'Shea, an expert, I, an evil expert on sustainability developing renewable energy at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Now, she doesn't see renewable expansion as being that big of a deal, more of a balancing act. Now, her preference would be that we put solar panels on the tops of all of our houses and all buildings and on top of parking structures, but that adoption just isn't happening fast enough, at least not to battle back the horrors of climate change, not in the precious little time that we have left. And what do we do? Do we fight climate change that will destroy ecosystems with technology that could destroy ecosystems? Oh, what a conundrum. Now, there's a lot of work to be done, but don't worry. The right actions are being taken under consideration. For instance, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is taking the petition from the Center for Biological Diversity to save the TM buckwheat, asking for it to be labeled an endangered species. They're just simply asking for 910 acres to be designated as a critical habitat for the buckwheat. That's the 10 acres on the entire planet that it apparently inhabits, plus a large buffer zone to sustain its pollinating insects. The lithium mining company that's planning a mine in the general region of the 
precious, precious buckwheat basically said, uh, eh, it's not really going to affect where we're going to dig. No. So really, this comes down to a lot of wasted bureaucratic paper pushing and wasted money for for nothing. Basin and Ridgewatch, you know, the married couple that aren't going to bow to your marital norms, they're suing to stop a lithium mine in northwest Nevada because it could endanger, and again, please sit down, the greater sage-grouse population. And they're also trying to fend off the high-voltage transmission line that would run 350 miles between Reno and Las Vegas, linking these new solar projects to the grid because we can't have whatever that would entail. They said that although they've been called oil shills, which I'd have to imagine is like a dagger straight to the heart, that they'd be fighting the same fight if it was an oil pipeline or a coal plant. It just so happens to be that in this case, they're protesting technologies that help fight climate change rather than to cause it. Okay. So I have a very basic question, and this would admittedly help the renewable energy companies, which, incidentally, I have no problem with renewables as long as it's done in a natural type of way rather than being, you know, thrust and forced upon us while prematurely shutting down what's actually sustaining us, thus destroying the country and the lives of tens of millions of people. But to my question for these ecologists and conservationists and activists, what is the benefit of the things you're saving? The small fish, the small snails, the 10 acres of buckwheat, the butterfly, in the grand scheme of the intricate workings of this world, if those things disappeared entirely from the face of the earth, would anyone other than you even notice? If the answer is no, I'm not saying to go out and poison the waters and squash the butterflies, you know, initiate a scorched earth policy to rid us of that dirty buckwheat. But do what humanity requires, as we are literally the top of the food chain by design, and allow these minuscule habitats and plants and animals, fish and bugs, to either adapt or die out. The world was created for man to use, to take care of, yes, but to use and to populate. Man was not created for the planet for us to worship, for us to make an idol of. Now, if we killed off all the honeybees from the face of the planet, yeah, that would be a devastating blow to our entire ecological system. But if that 10 acres of buckwheat dies, would it matter? How many plants, animals, bugs, and fish have gone extinct, at least to the best of our knowledge, since creation, or if you're an evolutionist, over millions of years, and yet life goes on? The planet still functions. The major ecological cycles haven't stopped um, cycling. But they're, they're acting like losing a tiny snail will literally make the planet stop rotating and crack in half. I've got a hard time going there with them. But the larger question is, do we even need to force the implementation of renewables? Is climate change actually man-made? Can mankind stop it? And my overarching simple question is, why do we think that the current global temperature as of right now is the correct steady state temperature of the planet. I've asked this question of multiple environmental types with no answer. The reality is we have too many factors to consider only one. And we are unbelievably arrogant to think that we are the ultimate civilization. In millions of years, per their thinking, we actually got the correct temperature. Lucky us. I mean, with the large heat emitting orb in the sky, 
the big hunks of ice on the top and the bottom of the ball we live on, the massive oceans that are either absorbing or emitting heat, volcanoes erupting randomly and spewing ash into the air, animal populations growing or shrinking, human populations growing or shrinking, industry and technology growing at different rates around the globe, the global temperature would take a massive amount of time to stabilize at one steady state temperature. In fact, even in millions of years, I personally can't see how it could ever stop moving, either warming or cooling. The reality is a certain segment of mankind have decided that the temperature it is now is the one they want it to stay because they've built right up to the water or in the middle of swampland and they don't want that water level to rise, you know, because that would be bad for them. Or maybe they've invested in industries that require the globe to pretty much stay the same. Or most likely, and I know maybe this sounds a little cynical, they've seen a way to gain massive amounts of money while also gaining massive amounts of power and control by ginning up the fallacy or as I'd like to call it, the stupid lie by evil people for gullible sheeple, that we're all going to die if the global temperatures rise by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And as they say every three or four years, we only have 10 years. In fact, we've only had 10 years to destruction for about 40 years now. Now, God has provided us with massive amounts of fuel to use that we have used and we can use to bring people out of poverty, to go from a crisis of people starving around the world, to people actually dying of obesity, to bring water, electricity, and improvements in quality and length of life to billions around the world. The number of things that we have been able to discover, build, create, and do because of God's plan to give us abundant sources of energy and allow us the ability to grow in knowledge of how to use them is unfathomable. The answer to the problem is to stop making this a political issue and look at the facts, the data, the actual science, and take actions based on that. That is not what climate science is. Climate science starts with the alleged fact that man-caused global warming will literally destroy the planet and only man can stop it. Maybe. Well, that's a lie. It's quite simply an arrogant, self-absorbed view of those with a God complex. So what do we do if the temperature goes up and the sea levels rise? We adapt. We move. We build. We'd go on living. We'd find a way to continue just soldiering on because that's what we've always done. In fact, when you look at population density across the world, looking at it by latitude across the globe, the densest areas of population are in fact in the hottest zones. So if the planet warmed by a few degrees, maybe the hottest zones would thin out a bit and people would migrate slightly north and slightly south. If New Orleans floods because it's built below sea level, you know, in a swamp, well, first of all, good riddance, but second, the people can move. I don't want to. Okay, fine, live on a houseboat. I don't care. I don't think we're honoring God by literally keeping life-saving, life-improving technology from third-world countries, which is exactly what we're doing, or pushing industrialized nations back a few hundred years just so we can worship the planet. I think we need to seriously look at the motives of those that are pushing the climate agenda. Then I think we need to prosecute and lock up any of them that have terrorized generations of people through their drummed-up lies so they can become rich and powerful. 
then I think we need to eliminate the stupid unscientific phrase of settled science, and then we need to look at the actual science, the actual data and facts, and start a deprogramming campaign of verifiable and testable facts to help those that are caught in a world of climate terror. From that point, we can then utilize the resources that God has granted us while naturally and privately, as in no government mandates, laws, or funds, working on the next great breakthroughs in battery technology, solar energy collection, wind collection, geothermal energy. I guarantee that these renewable resources are able to be used, but not to the extent we want to use them, at least not yet. And forcing them into the structure will do more harm than good, much more harm than good, to people. And as these activists are finding out, also to ecosystems. So the simple question and follow-up to ask to end this ridiculousness, what is the correct temperature of the planet and how do you know? And the simple solution so as to bring about the largest benefit with the smallest impact, continue using the resources God has provided while developing alternative, viable methods. It's literally that simple. If you're my age, which is um, approximately old, or maybe a generation or two younger or older, you probably remember Mr. Rogers and his land of make-believe. Even if you don't know that reference, I guarantee that definitely as a child, and oftentimes as adults, you've played in your own land of make-believe. You were a cowboy, an astronaut, a soldier, a mommy, a daddy, or any number of things. You played with Legos, Tinker Toys, Lincoln Logs, Matchbox Cars, dolls, dress-up clothes, play kitchens. In fact, sticks, rocks, dirt, trees, and fields that hadn't been mowed down yet were all places you could make your wildest imaginations come true. But there came a point where you stopped making believe. Maked believing. Making believing. You stopped pretending. I'm not saying for good, just for now, as you had to go back to school, or it was time for dinner, or you were brutally forced to clean your room, or worse yet, take a bath. And as we grew up, we entered that land less and less, but with certain friends, and definitely with children, you entered that realm for a short time again, only to have to leave it in order to raise those kids, or fix the car, fix dinner, or go to work. Now, it appears from what I'm seeing one of those things is slowly but steadily disappearing. And it's not the pretending thing. Living in reality, actually living the life you have, is being replaced by living a life of imagination. And then after stumbling through life as a pretender, you eventually hit the wall of reality, or you just die. I mean, yeah, that sounds a little brutal, but that's becoming more and more the truth. Adding to this land of make-believe, we have from Futurism.com headline, AI expert says soon people will raise virtual children that cost less, are less messy. So first, for those of you older than me, and yes, that's, that's still possible for right now, AI stands for artificial intelligence, basically smart computers with some capability to learn and gain knowledge. Most of you are at least familiar with one of these seven levels of hell called Facebook. You may not take part in Facebookage, and to that I say, good, stay away, just stay far, far away. But one of the newest creations or adoptions of Facebook is now called the Metaverse. Now, this is basically an artificially created universe inside a computer. 
you have your own little avatar that you control. You buy digital properties, like for real money, houses, items, you can date, you can go to the game, you can go to the movies or go to church, all inside the metaverse. You would wear your virtual reality goggles and accessories if you have them, and you just kind of hang out virtually, I guess while you're safe in your room at home or in your basement or in your parents' basement or whatever. And I only sort of say safely, as at the time of this writing, there have been two reported sexual molestations inside of Meta, as in someone's avatar inappropriately did avatar-y things with someone else's avatar. And I wonder, why didn't the one just turn it off or take off the headset? Anyway, it seems like a fun game overall minus the molestation, and I stress game in some respects. If, if you're into that sort of virtual reality thing, it seems pretty neat. But it seems like a very sad, pitiable existence if that's what you're doing with your life. But either of those are fine. That's your call, I guess. But now it's taken on what I would call a sinister, or let's just call it what it is, an evil twist, as it's being combined with climate change, the green agenda, the overall goal of depopulation in order to save the planet from the true virus, humans. Catriona Campbell, an AI expert in the UK and author of the book AI by Design, A Plan for Living with Artificial Intelligence, said that we could soon be raising virtual children inside the metaverse, which I agree, that's, that's very likely to happen if it isn't already. But rather than looking at it as a game or as a diversion, she's looking at it as a way to combat the myth of man-made climate change. Now, for more on why I call this a myth, just check out any of my past episodes where I deal with the topic of climate change. And the evil myth of overpopulation is the other one that she's trying to tackle. These two concepts really go hand in hand, but they are also played independently by some in order to mask the overall goal, which is the eradication of human life. Now, her argument is that overpopulation is having devastating effects on the environment, and this could solve some of those problems if managed correctly. The argument is also made that while raising children is expensive and messy, raising AI children will be much cheaper. Maybe a monthly fee or something like that. You can't, can't expect it to be free. And not messy at all. I mean, how convenient. Almost makes you not want to have a real child, doesn't it? We'll get into the overpopulation myth in just a moment, but what it absolutely isn't is settled science, or even defendable science. In fact, it's not science at all. One person you might have heard of who is devising a way to get us off of this planet because he absolutely thinks that we're going to destroy the planet and will need somewhere else to live, a somewhat well-known name, Elon Musk, has said that we need to be having more children. China, notorious for having their one-child policy, a brutal policy that caused the deaths of untold numbers of mainly baby girls over many years, has moved from one child to two-child and is now heading into a three-child policy because their population is set to drop for the first time in about 60 to 70 years. And one thing that no country can sustain, especially not one the size of China, is a drop in population. That is what would actually be devastating. 
Now, I think this expert, and I'll put some fairly large quotes around that word, rightly predicts that as the metaverse is adopted to greater and greater degrees, people will be creating and raising more and more AI children. That seems almost a given. I hate to think of the atrocities that will happen to these AI children, because in the virtual world, you can pretty much do what you want. Sadly, I digress. Where I can't go with her, or any AI expert, or anyone such as Glenn Beck, which I like him a lot in many areas, but he's seemingly terrified of the perceived power of AI, well, as she says in her book, quote, Virtual children may seem like a giant leap from where we are now, but within 50 years, technology will have advanced to such an extent that babies which exist in the metaverse are indistinct from those in the real world. Hmm. No. I'm sorry. Now, I'll predict this. You can note this down. That will literally never happen. There will never be a point where at least a segment of the population won't know what reality is and what fantasy is. So let's take a look at this overpopulation craze. This theory goes back to Thomas Malthus, which I've covered in a previous episode. His basic premise was that the more people that exist, the more resources, primarily food, they'd consume. And at some point, there's a crossover between the food supply and the population, and then people start to starve and die. So we need to limit population. It was a stupid theory in 1789. It's incredibly stupid today. What he failed to take into account, what we still fail to take into account, is advances in farming and food production and technology in general. And up until recently global coordination of food. Of course, the whole stuff going on around the world is screwing that up, but that's a different story. This theory should have died with Malthus, but it didn't. It did settle down some for a while, and then bring in the lies of global warming. Now, not only do we have more people which exhale more, need more resources, create more waste, we also have more industry, which we need to support more people. And we need more transportation and more heating and cooling, more people eating. Those that promote the theory of overpopulation are not concerned with too many people, not enough food. They may say that, but that's simply just lies. They know that will literally never be a problem. What they want is to save Mother Earth. Unfortunately, humans are considered the largest virus on the planet by these humans, and we need to get rid of most of them, literally most of them, as in, look around you, gather seven other people with you. Now, you need to kill six or seven out of those eight. Now, remember, you're one of the eight, so choose wisely. Additionally, we need to only allow one baby born for one person who dies in addition to the six or seven out of eight that we're already going to kill. That way we can keep a very stable population. This is what the elite of the elites, the power brokers, those that look down at you and me as, like I said, a virus that needs to be vaccinated away. Let that idea sink in for a minute. This is a humanist and honestly a satanic worldview. And I'd argue that those that consider themselves the best of the best, that want to be rid of most of us, they are at the very least, in the employ of Satan. So a little data. On the Earth, there are about 40.1 million square miles of habitable land. As of right now, about 20 million square miles are used for agriculture. About 15 million square miles is forest land. 
only about 579,000 square miles is actually urbanized. That equates to 16.1 trillion square feet. That means for 8 billion people, every person could have just over 2,000 square feet all to themselves. And this is if we didn't build up or down or live on the water. And this doesn't count the people that live out in the forest land or the shrub land or any location that isn't considered urbanized. These numbers also mean that there is the equivalent of just over 1.5 acres of agriculture land for every human. Now, 1.5 acres isn't a massive amount of land, but per person? See, I, I kind of think we could each survive just fine on our own personal 1.5 acre garden. In fact, if we gave every person on the planet, all approximately 8 billion of them, if we gave each person a 2 foot by 2 foot space to stand in, we could fit everyone in the world in Rhode Island with room left over. Bottom line, we're not overpopulated. There's literally plenty of space for everyone. But like I said, that's not the reason behind the goal of depopulation. It's to eliminate people because the earth needs us to do that so it can survive. This is all just to worship the earth. I know I come back to Romans a lot, but that's because Paul very eloquently lays out the problems and the solution. So to Romans 1 we go again. Starting at verse 18, we see, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then we get the threefold, so God gave them up, coming right after that. And of course, the them is referring generally to us. We wanted to do what we wanted to do. Now, we knew better, but we made idols of wood and metal, idols of man, animals, fish, leisure, exercise, kids, family, and every manner of thing. And God said, okay, I'll let you try it. And you see what we've done with it. We failed miserably. We, like entire civilizations before us, like the entire world population at one time before us, have turned to debased, perverse, delusional ways of living. And now, while Elon Musk is trying to get us off of this planet before we destroy it as that's what he truly and sadly believes is the answer. We also have the brain trust of Facebook, led by definitely not an alien or robot, Mark Zuckerberg. I think rightly identifying that we've so screwed up this world, screwed up our very lives, that escapism is really one of the only answers we have right now. If we can just get away from the mess we're in and get to a clean, fun, matrixy kind of land where we can be who we want, do what we want, as long as it adheres to the rules, we'll be so much happier. And then maybe we can endure the awful existence we have in the real world and quickly get back to our perfect life, you know, as fast as possible. I say follow the rules. Of course, you can already see the depravity has crept in. Like I said, there are already two reported sexual assaults. And although I can't even fathom what that actually means, the reality is that whatever it is, 
depravity has found its way in the metaverse already. And the metaverse is uh, pretty much brand new. Funny how people without God, you know, sinful humanity, will drag their perverseness and depravity anywhere they go. There's literally no human escape from this sinful world. Again, Paul perfectly captures this sinfulness, the muck and mire we wallow in while on this planet, moving forward a few chapters to Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being... But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? For the unsaved individual, there is no struggle as Paul described. That's why, although there is debate as to if Paul was talking about his current state or his previous state prior to his encounter with Jesus— I simply can't see him speaking of any time other than his current struggles. Before he was saved, you know, called to be an apostle by Jesus, he was doing what he thought was right. He didn't see his sin because he didn't understand the actual law of God. That conflict wasn't there. But now he understands the letter and the purpose of the law. He's still a man with all the struggles that all men and all mankind have. And to think that Paul would have been... Sinless is foolishness. So, for the vast majority of the population who are unsaved, they don't see their depravity in this world. They would drag it with them, but still not see it on a different planet. And they've already shown that they'll carry it with them into an alternative existence. So we're hopeless, lost. But no, Paul continues, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The answer isn't to save the planet. God's got the whole world in his hands. While Jesus was dying on the cross, he was sustaining every atom in existence at the same time. He never once lost track of even one. Being sovereign, being omnipotent and omniscient, he designed and created this planet for us, and nothing we can do can destroy it before its time, and nothing we can do can save it from its appointed end. The answer isn't to run to a different planet, or to hide in a virtual world full of unfulfillment of virtual friends, virtual activities, virtual children. That's nothing but a lie from Satan himself. God told us to fill up this planet, 
Be fruitful and multiply. And Satan has been trying to kill our children, destroy our population since nearly the beginning. And persuading us, conning us into living virtual lives, is just another ploy that will take its toll. Of that I have no doubt. But I also have no doubt that, as with all his other schemes, it will also ultimately fail. We are not called to run and hide. We're not called to sleep our days away. We're not called to spend our time frivolously. We're called to repent and believe, then meditate on God's word, then worship God, then go and tell others, so they don't have to live in a virtual world to try to escape, to try to save the real world. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.